So we are looking at Genesis chapter 4, and we're continuing our sermon series called The Rhythm of God. And Moses takes us back to Genesis. He takes us through Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. And what we're making the case for is that the first few chapters of Genesis, particularly Genesis chapter 1 through 12, we begin to see patterns and rhythms that will help us understand who God is and how he moves and how he operates, not just in the Bible, but in our life and throughout all of history. And so we're looking at the story of Cain and Abel this morning, found in Genesis chapter 4. So we're going to be looking at Genesis 4, verse 1 through 16. It says this, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well do well. Sin is crouching at the door. His desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you're cursed from the ground and has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield it to you, its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today from the ground and from your face I have been hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wander on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken from him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of God. This is really, in Genesis chapter 4, the worst case scenario, isn't it? I mean, we read it last week, actually the last two weeks, we've been looking at Genesis chapter 3, and you can only imagine that this is the worst case scenario. Maybe you were hoping, if you've never read Genesis chapter 4, imagine yourself reading Genesis chapter 4 for the first time, in light of Genesis 3, the fall and sin and death entering into the world, and then you get to 4 and you go, it's so much worse than I thought. I mean, there's so many things happening here in Genesis chapter 4. It's, you have the first murder. You, you have a, a fit of rage and jealousy of Cain, the older brother, in jealousy and cold blood, murdering his younger brother, Abel. I mean, you have the callous and hard nature uh, of Cain wreaking havoc into, his, into the world, into the family. And you go, this, this is so much worse than I thought it could have been. It's the worst case scenario. It's almost a made-for-TV movie, older brother murders younger brother. But what we see here, it's a story of justice. See, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 through 16, we see a story of God exercising justice in light of the unjust murder of Abel. 
And in the story of God's justice, you'll see a just God exercising his justice all throughout the Bible. And the word justice simply means to make wrongs right. To make something that is wrong right, that is justice. When you see something that is unjust, when you see something that is not right, when you see something that is wrong, to make it right again is justice. And you see this from God all throughout the Bible, and we're going to see it here in Genesis chapter 4. It's the rhythm of God's justice taking something that is wrong, taking something that is unjust, and making it right. And there's three things that we see that I want to look at briefly this morning that we see here in this story and helping us to understand how God works and moves in justice. The first thing that we're going to see here in Genesis chapter 4 is an offering, right? In in verse 3 through 5, we see two offerings actually here. We see the offering of Cain, which was what? It was the fruit offering. And we see the offering from Abel, which was the first portions, right? It was the first portions of the animal sacrifice. It was the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions he brings to God. And what happens in verse 3 and 5 is God looks at the offerings. They worship God through their offerings. And what happens? God rejects Cain. And his offering and accepts and embraces and favors Abel and his offering. And you stop and you go, was it the offering? Was it God had a preference for the meat instead of the fruit? What exactly was God rejecting in the offering? Well, we'll later find out centuries later and the author of Hebrews will actually tell us that Abel gave his offering how? By faith. The author of Hebrews will tell us that it was by faith that Abel sent his offering to God. Basically, you can make the conclusion that it was Cain's lack of faith that he gives his offering of fruit. And you can kind of see it here, right? When Cain brings his offering of fruit, it's almost like a token. It's it's almost as if I'm obligated to do this. I maybe don't really want to do it, but here's the fruit. And you see from Cain, or from Abel, out of his faith, out of understanding what God had provided for him, he's able to do what? He's able to give the best offering, because it's not done out of obligation, it's, out of, it's done by faith. Out of everything that God had given him, he's able to say, God, you can have my best, I don't need to hold on to anything, because you've given me everything that I need. So when God looks at the offering, he's not looking at the offering himself. itself. What is he doing? God is looking at the condition of their heart. And he's saying, your heart understands, Abel, that God has given you everything that you need. Therefore, you're able to give the best. You're able to give the sacrificial offering. Where Cain's offering was not sacrificial in any way. And this was the root of what happened, right? It was the root of how this became a story that spun out of control between Cain and Abel. Because what happens next is Cain looks at that and he goes, wait a second, I'm the firstborn child. I'm the favored child, right? Remember in verse 1, what does Eve do? Eve doesn't say anything about Abel. All she does is she's glowing about Cain. Look, God has given me a man, translated man-child. He's given me, a, he's given me Cain. doesn't say anything about Abel. And you can imagine that was probably the beginning of this sibling rivalry. And here, all of a sudden, the sibling rivalry that had been going on since birth 
culminates and it climaxes here with the offering. You're going to tell me that you are going to accept Abel, my younger brother, who wasn't even regarded by my mother? I'm the, mother, I'm the apple of my mother's eye. You're going to reject me and accept him. And all hell breaks loose. And we see what happens here. It leads to murder. It leads to the innocent murder, the unjust murder of Abel. So not only do we see two offerings, one that God accepts and one that God rejects, we actually see sin here. We see something very profound talked about sin here in this passage. And it's found in verse 7 and 9. In verse 7, what does it say about sin? In the second portion, in the second part of verse 7, what does God say about sin? He looks at Cain, and what does he say? He said, sin is crouching at your door. What is he trying to say there about sin? He's basically saying your entire life, all of a sudden, you didn't wake up one day, have a bad day, wake up on the wrong side of the bed, and decide to kill your brother. This sin has been crouching at your door your entire life, and you have failed to rule over it. Other translations say master it. Don't miss this, what God is trying to say. He is saying sin is not as obvious as you think. And he said, what we tend to do, we tend to minimize sin. We tend to minimize its effects and its destructive nature. And what God is saying, it's deceptive. It hides. It camouflages itself. Probably Cain's entire life, he never even realized what he was dealing with truly in his heart, the rivalry and the jealousy. He had no idea that its root was found in sin. And sin finally exposes itself in its ugliest form. And God says it's crouching at your door and you don't even realize it. I think it's so important for us to understand the nature of sin even in our life. That it's it's not obvious, it's not black and white, it's deceptive. It comes crouching at your door and you don't even realize it. And you see what the beautiful thing about this church that preaches the gospel of grace is that it doesn't allow us to be ignorant to sin and to its real effects in our life. When we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, it actually awakens us and it, 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 it opens our eyes to the real effects and danger of sin in our life. Therefore, we can allow people to come into our life and speak truth to us without resisting it. We can allow people to come into our life and rebuke us and hold us accountable. We can invite people into our life without resisting it or being defensive and saying, yes, I'm a total mess. Come into my life and speak truth. The truth about sin and its destructive nature in my life. It doesn't have to be something that is done in secret or done in hiding. It doesn't need to be the very thing that is crouching at my door. And the other thing that we see here about sin is not only is it deceptive, in verse 9, it shows how sin, if not taken care of, if not, as God says, ruled over or mastered, what sin will eventually do. Is this the most calloused response you could have ever imagined? When God looks at Cain and he says, what have you done? God is giving him an opportunity here to repent. He's giving him an opportunity to come clean. He's giving him an opportunity. And what does he say in verse 9? Is this, it's the worst response you could ever imagine. What does he say? Am I my brother's keeper? Could you imagine the audacity? 
I mean, you would think he would have said, God, I mean, fall to his face, fall to his knees, confess his sin in repentance. But what does he say? Sin had become so apparent in his life. It had become so destructive that it began to harden his heart. He had become callous to sin to the point when he is confronted by God and has every chance in the world to confess and to repent. What does he do? Am I my brother's keeper? The audacity. But it shows you what sin does, the destructive nature of sin, if not mastered, if not ruled over, that it will rule and master you, becoming very hard, becoming very callous, destructive. And there we see, there Cain being mastered by the sin, the sin that not only took his brother's life, but is taking over his life. So we see an offering. We see the dangerous effects of sin. But lastly, we see this. We see a voice. We see an offering. We see sin. And we see a voice in verse 10. And it says in verse 10, The Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. There's a voice coming from the ground. And who is it? It's the blood of Abel. It's the blood of Abel's voice crying to God from the ground. Every time we see in Scripture blood crying out, what does that mean? It means justice. Whenever blood is crying out, it's crying for one thing. It's crying for justice. Abel's blood is crying out from the ground saying, God, make this right. This is something that has happened unjustly. You need to make this right. And God being a just God, God being perfectly just, what? Has to make it right in order for his justice to be upheld. In light of the offering being rejected, in light of the murder happening to Abel, the blood is crying out from the ground for justice. And we see justice exercised, don't we? The last verse that I read this morning is probably one of the scariest verses in all the Bible. Cain is cast out. Cast out and forever separated from God. Is there a scarier word in all the scripture to be cast out, alienated from God? He's sent to a land by the name of Nod, which means in the Hebrew wandering. He will forever be a wanderer on the earth, alienated from God because of his sin. God exercises his justice in the life of Cain. But it's interesting. We will once again hear about this blood. We'll once again hear about the blood of Cain or the blood of Abel. We'll once again hear from this voice. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, I think we have the verse for you. In verse 24, it says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The author of Hebrews is saying, there is a man by the name of Jesus, centuries later, centuries after the blood that cried out, the blood of Abel that cries out from the ground of justice. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12 says, there is another voice. There is a voice that cries out a better word, and his name is Jesus. How does Jesus cry out? You see, Abel's blood cried out for justice. 
Jesus' blood cries out for justice. You thought I was going to say mercy. No, no, no. Abel's blood cries out for justice, and Jesus' blood cries out for justice. Then, then how, though, how's the word of Jesus, how is the blood of Jesus better than Abel? Abel's blood cried out for justice and said, someone else has to pay. And they did. Cain paid for the murder of his brother, Abel. Jesus' blood cries out for justice and says, I will pay. Abel's blood cries out for justice and Jesus' blood cries out for justice to be delivered in his sacrifice. It is a better word. It is a better voice. It is a better blood that doesn't cry out for someone to receive justice. His blood cries out and says, justice will be delivered through me. It's how in 1 John 1, 9, the author John is able to say in 1 John 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Not if we confess our sins, he is faithful and merciful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just. Don't miss that. Only Jesus, only the cross, can God be both forgiving and just at the same time. You see, other gods can be forgiving but they can't be just. Other gods can be just, but not forgiving. But only in the cross of Jesus Christ can God be both forgiving and just at the same time. Only in the cross can God offer his forgiveness for those that find their life reconciled to Jesus. Because Jesus took the penalty for us. And Jesus stands at the right hand of God the Father as our advocate, not pleading to God, oh, they messed up again, they messed up again, please let them off the hook this time. He stands before God and he says, they are pardoned, they are with me because of my blood, because of my sacrifice, because I, Jesus Christ, have taken and satisfied the righteous demands of justice. Think about that. We have an advocate that sits at the right hand of God the Father, an advocate who defends us, an advocate before the judge who says the justice has been satisfied, the penalty of sin has been paid. What does that mean for you this morning? It means for you this morning you don't always have to be right because there was somebody who was right for you. It means this morning that you don't always have to go through life with a defensive posture because there is someone who continually defends you before the great God, the creator and redeemer. You don't always have to be defending yourself. You don't always in a meeting have to have the last word because Jesus has the last word for you. It's the word of forgiveness. That is the good news for you this morning. Don't have to go through life always being right. Don't always have to go through life defending yourself. See, you don't even realize that you live your life in a courtroom and you don't even realize it. Always continually defending yourself, proving yourself, justifying yourself. And that is a burdensome way to live your life. To have to feel like you are always defending yourself. 
and not allowing Jesus, the righteous one, to defend you before God. You don't always have to be defensive, don't always have to be corrective, don't always have to be on guard, don't always have to be and have the last word. Jesus did that for us. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if we actually believe this? Can you imagine what our relationships would like, look like? Could you imagine what our marriages would look like? Can you imagine what it would look like to raise children? Could you imagine what it would be like to own and operate businesses? Could you imagine what it would look like to even be a part of a church with people that understood that they don't have to defend themselves, but they have a defender? Could you imagine what it would be like for those that feel broken, for those that feel like they have been treated unfairly, for those that have felt like they have been taken advantage of at one point in their life, to know that they have an advocate and his name is Jesus Christ, we might actually be enjoyable to be around if we actually believe this to be true. I'll end with this. A few months ago, I heard a story from a family that we're close to. He's only 16 years old, and he was uh, accused of something that he didn't do at school. And it, it, it got very ugly between this boy and the other family. And it went to the teachers, and it went to the principal office. And it even got so bad, it even meant appearing before a judge here in Broward County. And the boy, of course, was petrified. Petrified, didn't know what he was going to say, didn't know how he was going to react, didn't know what exactly he would tell the judge. And the night before, he couldn't sleep. What am I actually going to tell the judge? I need to prove my innocence. I need to justify that I did not do this, that I am being accused of something that I simply did not do. And he couldn't sleep the night before. And the morning of appearing before the judge, he goes into the courtroom with his father. And they hear the other story, they hear the other case, and right before the boy who's being accused is about to speak, the judge looks at him, absolutely petrified, shaking in his seat, and he says, young man, you can be dismissed. I want to speak to your father. And five minutes pass, and 20 minutes pass, and an hour finally passes, and somebody gets the young man and brings him back into the courtroom. And the judge looks at him, And he says, you're free to go. You're not guilty. And the little boy, with his lip quivering, looks at the judge in amazement. And he says, I haven't even had a chance to plead my case. I didn't even have to plead my case. And the judge looks at him and says, you didn't have to. Your dad did it for you. Your dad told us what kind of a young man you are. And I am overwhelmed. You're free to go. You're dismissed. That boy says that he was overwhelmed. That you could never explain that feeling of walking out of that room with his father, knowing that he is declared not guilty. But for those that are in Christ this morning, you should know that feeling. Because for those that are in Christ, we have an advocate that sits at the right hand of God the Father and looks upon you and says, you are pardoned. You are forgiven. Justice has been satisfied once and for all through Jesus Christ.
And like Pilgrim, at the end of Pilgrim's Progress, when he's walking to the celestial city and his friends and his family members are saying that you are crazy, you're crazy to live this, believe this world, you're crazy to go to the celestial city, what does Pilgrim do? He puts his fingers in his ears, he goes towards the celestial city, and he follows the voice that cries out life. Put your fingers in your ears today and walk towards that city that offers life.